Thanks, Larry. Well, we are making our way now through the 14th chapter of Revelation. We have been in this book for some time, and we're a little over halfway through, and uh, we intended to continue through basically the end of May is when we're we plan to wrap up um, end of May, 1st of June, but we'll be taking it chapter by chapter pretty much from here on out. Um, before uh, we get into Romans four, or Revelation 14 this morning, just want to um, say a word that uh, this is the last Sunday for our brother and sister Scott and Christina. They're sitting right up here on the front row on the right. They're moving up closer to Joey and Jessica Stutzman, who, if you remember, were also members of our church for a period of time up in Washington, Indiana area. So hug their necks in the most COVID-appropriate ways and uh, love them and wish them well. You all have been a joy, and we love you all, and we will miss you seeing you each week. So... God bless you in this next season. Well, uh, as Larry said, um, this, this chapter in Revelation, Revelation 14, marks the end of a section of Revelation, which is basically comprising 12, 13, and 14. Chapters 12, 13, and 14. And these chapters are sort of the behind-the-scenes chapters. As we've seen these temporal judgments unfold and God promised these judgments in the world, even while he is bringing salvation to his people, Nevertheless, in Revelation 12 through 14, we get the behind-the-scenes look at what's really happening, the spiritual warfare that's taking place. In chapter 12, we met the dragon, Satan, who is committed to not only ending and killing Christ, but since he couldn't do that, trying to end Christ's people. And he does this through uh, his, his unholy trinity, through the false prophet and the, and the beast, which we talked about in Revelation 13, working through deception and governmental power, if he can, to bring an end to God's people. Revelation 14 is sort of the capstone of these three chapters. It's the, 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 the end of the trilogy. You know how good trilogies are set up, right? The first part of the trilogy always gets, gets us into the battle and the meat of the story. That's really what Revelation 12 does. And then Revelation 13 is kind of like the middle of the trilogy, where it's a lot of darkness and a lot of struggle. And then Revelation 14 would be the end. It's the, it's the last of the story. It's, it's, it's how things are eventually going to wrap up in the end. And Revelation 14 gives a picture that it is worth it for God's people to endure because heaven and hell are what hangs in the balance as we war against the false prophet and the beast and the dragon. That as God's people resist this unholy trinity, it's not in vain. Heaven will make amends. Hell will pay. So this is really what this chapter deals with, heaven and hell. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I've, I've, if you've got a copy of the outline, which is on the back of your worship guide, we're really going to walk through five questions this morning. And I hope it will give us a sort of mini primer on heaven and hell. What's heaven like? What's hell like? Who goes to heaven? Who goes to hell? How will it all end? And those are the five questions we're going to look at this morning sort of a catechism on heaven and hell. So I want to start, first of all, at the end of Revelation 14 and answer this question. What will take place at the end? What will take place at the end? And Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20, which is often called the harvest, that's the language that is used here in the chapter, um, describes what will take place at the end. Namely, there will be two different harvests take place. There will be a grain harvest and a grape harvest. Now remember, Revelation is symbolic, okay? Everything in this book is meant to give us word pictures, not literal 
figures, okay? Word pictures that are intended to describe and, and ignite our imaginations and fire them with what things might be like. So we're going to talk about briefly what will happen at the end, and it's going to be two harvests, a grain harvest and a grape harvest. Not literal grain, not literal grapes, but grain representing God's people and grapes representing unbelievers. So first of all, we're going to look at verses 14 through 16, which describe the grain harvest. That's the harvest of the saved. And then secondly, in verses 17 through 20, the grape harvest, which is the harvest of the condemned. First of all, the harvest of the saved. Now, in verses 14 through 16, we read here a portrayal of the harvest of those who are saved. First, you remember that the 144,000 is a symbolic number. We saw this back in Revelation chapter 14 that describes all of God's people. Okay? Contrary to what the Jehovah's Witnesses might tell you, the 144,000 is not a literal number. It is a figurative number that's designed to, to give you an idea of the full number of the redeemed. This is in the language of Revelation 14, verse 3, which are where the 144,000 are described as the redeemed from all the earth. So that's all of God's people who've ever been redeemed by Christ. So the message of harvest or reaping can be used in a positive sense as a metaphor of the gathering of God's elect. But what we see here is the glorious ingathering of God's elect from the four corners of the earth. The worldwide harvesting, reaping of God's people to himself. The reaping of the earth is John's poetic way of describing how Jesus, at his second coming, will differentiate between believers and unbelievers and will separate them and take into his presence all who have trusted in him as Lord and Savior. Second, we see the harvest of the condemned, or the grape harvest, in verses 17 through 20. And we're reading here of the final judgment that will come upon all who have rejected Jesus. Just as one would take grapes and tread upon them to produce wine, so the image here is that God in his wrath will tread upon the unbelieving, Christ-hating world. So you have two images of harvest here, back to back. A grain harvest and a grape harvest. The picture is clear that Christ will one day harvest from the earth all the saints who trust in him, and he will bring all true believers to himself. And at the same time, he is going to tread every sinner who turns from him. That's strong language. And it's language that is necessitated by this text. I mean, is there any more graphic portrayal of judgment, of the judgment of unbelievers, than the pictures of grapes being crushed in a wine press to flow out for miles like blood. It is a horrific picture. And it's something we're going to talk about a little bit later in the sermon. So don't get confused by all these verses and all these symbols throughout the book, brothers and sisters. For the essence of this book and the essence of these visions are crystal clear. Every single person in this room and in this world who has lived or will live, will one day come face to face with God. And they will either stand before God alone in their sin, or they will stand before God with Jesus as their Savior. We will either have lived for the ways of this world and reaped the consequences, or we will have endured for the Word of God. What will that be for you on that day? Well, that's really what the rest of the sermon 
is intended to unpack. We're going to look at four questions. Having looked at this sort of introductory question, how will it all end? Grain harvest, grape harvest. Unbelievers harvested for condemnation. Believers harvested for salvation. Let's, let's talk about, in the next four questions, some very simple, basic, but ever important questions. Who goes to heaven? Who goes to hell? And why? Okay, so first of all, I want to talk about who is it that goes to heaven? Now, verse 12 kind of offers us a summary statement of who will eventually be in God's presence forever. Verse 12 reads, here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Just to be clear, the saints are not a special category of Christian. The saints are every Christian. All Christians are called saints because all of them have been set apart for God. That's what saints means. Those who are sanctified, those who are set apart for God. But notice how John describes the saints. He says they are those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Those are the people who go to heaven. So I want to talk about those phrases briefly. We're going to look at three descriptors of those who go to heaven. Those who have faith in Jesus, those who keep the commandments of God, and those who endure. All out of verse 12. So let's talk about those one at a time. First of all, those who have faith in Jesus. Look at verse 13 again with me, where John says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So to die in the Lord means to die physically, right? All believers before the coming of Christ will die physically. But yet, they are in the Lord. So they die in the Lord, which means even though they die physically, they are spiritually united to Christ by faith. All those Christians that we have known and loved who have died are presently freed from the burden of painful striving and the struggle of resisting sin and the agony of brokenness of life on this earth. They are free. They no longer have to pray prayers of confession like we've done this morning. They no longer have to be assured by God's word of promise. They no longer have to sing songs longing to be delivered from this sinful earth and this sinful body and this sinful flesh to be with Christ forever. They have arrived. And it's a reassuring to know that their deeds follow them. That's very important language. Notice John says that blessed are the dead who die in the Lord for their deeds follow. Follow them, not precede them. Our deeds, brothers and sisters, don't pave the way into heavenly rest as if they were the grounds or the reason that God accepts us because we're really good people. No, the ultimate reason that they are in the presence of God is because they are, in the language of verse 3, redeemed, the redeemed of the earth. We don't redeem ourselves We don't secure our own salvation. We are those who have been forgiving through trusting in the work of Christ for us. In the language of Revelation 5.9, we have been ransomed for God by the death and resurrection of Christ. So instead, our deeds follow us in the sense that they bear witness to our faith in Christ. They are not the reason we are accepted into heaven. Deeds will be rewarded but they will not be the means by which we are granted access into the new heavens and new earth. This is why John says that the, that the key element for why people go to heaven is that they have, in the language of verse 12, faith in 
Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Reliance upon Jesus. But that doesn't mean that their lives are unimportant. In fact, as John says here in Revelation 14, verse 12, that not only do these saints have faith in Jesus, but they keep the commandments of God. They keep the commandments of God. So that's the second part. This isn't cheap grace. It's not a, the work of Christ is not a get into heaven, get out of hell free card. It's not as though, well, Christ did everything, so I can live however I want. No, it's rather Christ paid for, my, paid for my sins. He ransomed me. He bought me. He purchased me for himself. And I live in obedience to him. Now, a couple of things that we need to talk about here, because the language can be somewhat confusing. Notice that those who keep the commandments of God are described in verse 4 as virgins. Verse 4 says, It is these, that is the redeemed from the earth, the 144,000, the people of God, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, are we supposed to take that literally? Of course not. No. We don't take anything in Revelation literally. It's apocalyptic literature. It's symbolic. It, in fact, it would be ludicrous to take that literally. As though God were anti-sex. He's the one who invented it, after all, and arranged marriage for its legitimate fulfillment so that the earth could be populated in Genesis chapter 1, right? So this is not talking about literal virginity here. Virginity is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for the saints, which includes men and women, who have not compromised with the beast and the false prophet and the dragon. They've not gotten into bed, so to speak, with the unholy trinity. They have resisted the unholy trinity. They have remained loyal as a virgin bride to Christ. That's the imagery. This is similar to what we find in Revelation 2, verse 14, and Revelation 2, verses 20 through 22. So in summary, the virginity that's in view here is their refusal to defile themselves with the unholy trinity who resist temptation to compromise with the system of the beast and to yield to its idolatrous ways. It's a picture of Christ followers who have not given their hearts and minds and souls and lives over to the gods of sex and money and power in this world. They've held fast to Christ amidst the temptations and enticements of the unholy trinity. They are not sinless, but they are obedient. They are in the language of verse 4, 14, or sorry, they are in the language of verse for those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That's the image. So they not only receive Jesus as Savior, but they live under his Lordship as well. Can't have one without the other, right, brothers and sisters? We can't have Jesus as Savior and not have him as Lord. That's the most ludicrous idea that's come down that has deceived the souls of millions, is that somehow you can divide Christ. You can have like half of him. How's that work in any other marriage? Right? You go up to your spouse and say, Honey, I want this part of you, but not that part of you. Well, you don't want me then. Right? So Christ will have it no other way either. We have faith in Jesus and we keep the commandments of God. But that brings up another question. Notice what he says here in verse 5. And in their mouth, that is, these symbolic virgins, this 144,000, these redeemed, the, us, the people of God, in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. And now we start to get nervous. Because they're like, wait, 
No lie was found. I've lied. We've all lied. Blameless? Sinless? That's not me. That's not me. That's not me either. So what is this idea of no lie being found in their mouth and, and being blameless have to do with? Well, remember, keep in mind the big picture here. Keep in mind the contrast. It's interesting that this phrase, no lie, no lie was found in their mouth, is the same phrase that's used to describe Jesus in Isaiah 53, 9, where it said that the suffering Messiah had no deceit in his mouth. So this is a way of identifying God's people with their Savior. They're saying, just as Christ was the one who had no deceit in his mouth, according to Isaiah 53, so these people are identified with him. They're following the Lamb wherever he goes. They're like him. Now, what's interesting here is that the phrase, no lie, was found is eerily similar to Isaiah 44, verse 20, which, 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 which equates lying with idolatry. Isaiah 44, verse 20, talks about the lie that is in my right hand. And the lie being communicated there is, is idolatry. It's, it's false religion. It's allegiance to a false god. So what's being communicated here, I think by saying that the saints have no lie in their mouth, is not that they've never been guilty of lying, but rather that they, are integri- they have integrity and they are clinging to Jesus. They haven't compromised under the pressure of the beast and the false prophet to compromise their faith and go along with his idolatrous lies. Rather, they've resisted him in truth and said, Jesus is true, you are false. That is telling the truth to the unholy trinity. They're not willing to go along and believe his lies and buy into his way of life that's being offered to them. What about blamelessness, though? Well, just to be clear, brothers and sisters, you know this from Scripture. Blameless does not mean sinless. The blameless are those who have trusted in Christ to redeem them. The blameless are those who are seeking to follow the Lamb. The blameless are those who are clinging to Christ in the midst of of deception in the world and temptation from the world. Blameless people are not extra good people who have kept more rules than other Christians have. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11? through 11? How does Paul describe the blameless there? The blameless there, he says, are those who have been washed and justified and sanctified. But those were those who used to practice adultery and homosexuality and lying and theft. Such were some of you, Paul says, but you have now been washed and sanctified and justified. Heaven is going to be filled with former practicing adulterers, those who used to practice homosexuality, those who used to give into theft, those who used to be full of pride and self-righteousness, those who used to live for themselves in any number of ways, but they are redeemed. They have been washed. So just to be clear, brothers and sisters, We don't get to heaven without these things. But these are all the things we need to get to heaven. Faith in Jesus, seeking to follow him as Lord, and enduring to the end. Those are who get to heaven. Which means anyone qualifies if you meet the criteria. Belonging to Jesus, holding to Jesus, clinging to Jesus, having faith in Jesus... And out of that, living under his lordship and enduring no matter what it costs you, you will persevere to the end.
If you drop out of the race before the finish, you never belong to begin with. As Stephen Lawson said, the faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw from the first. The faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw from the first. So the, but the faith that endures to the end. So what do, you, what do you learn from this? Hold on to Jesus. Don't give up Jesus. Endure. When you sin, repent, seek Jesus. <laughs> Go back to Jesus. Go back to Jesus. Go back to Jesus. That's the lesson. So what is heaven like then? If those who are go to heaven, those are the ones who go to heaven, they have faith in Jesus, they endure, they keep the commandments of God. What is heaven like? Well, three things as well, from the first three verses of the chapter. Look at verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So the first thing we learn about heaven is this is the place where God dwells. This is the place where God dwells. It's described here as Mount Zion, which is familiar to those of us who know our Old Testaments. Psalm chapter 2, verse 6, Zion is the holy mountain of God on which he installs his Messiah as the king. In other words, Zion is the city of our God. It's the city where God dwells and protects his people. So that's what we're meant to be communicated here. It's picking up Old Testament language of Mount Zion and saying, this is where God is. God's people are with God. And that's the greatest thing about heaven, isn't it? That we're finally with our God. That is the big rock of heaven. As John Piper has repeatedly said, God is the gospel. Now, he doesn't mean by that the doctrine of God is the gospel message. He means that the end of the gospel, the whole goal of the gospel, is to get us home to God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 talks about that reality, that Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Not to just forgive our sins, not to ease our guilty consciences, not to give us peace, not to give a victorious Christian life right now. Not to give us everything we ever wanted, including all the parking spots we pray for in the Walmart parking lot. Favor of God, second spot, none of that. But God himself, that's what we're after. Second, though, heaven is a place of joy. Now, I know some of you get a little panicked when you read verse 2. It said, I heard the voice from heaven, like this roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were, verse 3, they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And you think, oh no, it's reinforcing all my greatest fears. Heaven is a world of harpists. I don't like the harp now. I won't even like the harp then. No offense to any of you who enjoy the harp. But you think, there it is. All the commercials are true. We're sitting on clouds, floating around, playing harps. Boring! Don't want it. I don't care if God's there. If that's what he's going to assign me to do for all eternity, not interested. I'm here to tell you, that's not what you're going to do for all eternity. It's symbolic language. It's intended to communicate something to you, right? And what is it intended to communicate? Heaven is a party. Heaven is a place of joy. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and 23 refers to Mount Zion as this way. 
you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, that's party clothes, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is a picture of joy. Harps in the Bible symbolize joy and gladness. They're all over the Psalms. Psalm 33, verse 2, 43, verse 4, 57, verse 8, 98, verse 5, 147, verse 7. All Psalms, all equating harps with joy. That's the image that's meant to be communicated. Heaven is a place of unspeakable and irrepressible and ongoing joy. Thirdly, it's a place of celebration. Look at verse 3, where we read that they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. So the new song is most likely a hymn of praise for the victory that God has secured on behalf over the dragon and his two beastly cohorts. The backdrop for the song in Revelation 15 is probably Exodus 15, which is the song of Moses. Remember when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and he brought them through the Red Sea and it looked like the Egyptians were about to overtake them, but God split the sea in half and he sent his people through the middle on dry land. And when they got through the other side after drowning the Egyptian army, Moses said, I sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And that's the song we'll one day sing. One day, Christian, you're going to look back and you're going to see how all of human history unfolded. And we're going to praise our God for the way he brought all these things to pass. We have questions now about why this and why that in the world. But on that day in the future, when we see it all, God was great and amazing in his deeds, and we will bless his name. On that day, conquering Christians will sing as they behold God's worth. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. I'm here to tell you this morning that heaven is not a place of boredom. Heaven is a place in which God dwells and in which there is ceaseless celebration and joy more than you could possibly take in. One day, brother or sister, when you come into heaven, you will be so overwhelmed with joy, you will feel like your body is about to break apart. This is what Jesus said. He said, one day we will hear, enter into the joy of your master. What does that mean? He didn't say, enter into joy. He said, enter into the joy of your master. He says, enter into God's joy. How happy is God? He's the happiest being in the universe. And we're being invited into the center of his own joy. J.C. Ryle said famously, here, some drops of joy enter into us. There, we enter into joy. What will it be to enter into joy? And not just to enter into joy, but to enter into the joy of God, the joy of our master. It can't be contained. It can't be described. But it's not all good news in this chapter, unfortunately. The second half of this chapter is full of bad news to make the good news all the more sweeter. So we're going to conclude with two... Concludes the wrong word. That's a bad preacher word. Don't say conclude unless you're in a minute later. You're concluding. 
We will continue in the next two questions to talk about two other questions. Who goes to hell and what is hell like? So let's come to question number four. Now that we've looked at who goes to heaven, what's heaven's like, let's look at who goes to hell and what's hell's like. Look at verse six. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So first of all, we see two descriptors. First of all, it's those who refuse to worship God. Verse 7 says that this angel is crying out with a loud voice to the earth, fear God and give him glory. That is, turn away from your sin and give your allegiance to the Lord. Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. So the obvious implication of that is those who are judged are those who don't do that. They don't fear God. They refuse to worship him. They refuse to give him glory. So those who go to hell choose this. They choose to not fear God and not to give him glory. I know that the talk of judgment is very, very disturbing and very offensive to our modern ears. The person who helped me the most probably at this point is theologian J.I. Packer in his now classic book, Knowing God. I want to read you an extended excerpt from what Packer says. If you have not read Knowing God, you're not in sin, but you're oh so close. No, I'm just kidding. You should read Knowing God at some point. It's worth your time. And no, we don't have it on the bookshelf, but, you're, but out here Amazon has something like that. Here's what Packer says. God's wrath in the Bible is something which men choose for themselves. Before hell is an experience inflicted by God, it's a state for which man himself opts by retreating from the light which God shines in his heart to lead him to himself. When John the Apostle writes, he who does not believe in Jesus is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, he goes on to explain himself as follows, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He means just what he says. The decisive act of judgment upon the lost is the judgment which they pass on themselves by rejecting the light that comes to them in and through Jesus Christ. In the last analysis, all that God does subsequently in judicial action towards the unbeliever, whether in this life or beyond it, is to show him and lead him into the full implications of the choices he has made. The basic choice was and is simple, either to respond to Christ, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, Matthew eleven twenty eight, or not, either to save one's life by keeping it for Jesus and resi- or resisting his demand to take it over or lose it by denying oneself, shouldering one's cross, becoming a disciple and letting Jesus have his own disruptive way with us. In the former case, Jesus tells us we may gain the world, but it will do us no good, for we shall lose our souls. But in the later case, by losing our life for his sake, we'll find it. But they are not arbitrary inflictions, Packer says. He says they represent rather a conscious growing into the state in which one has chosen to be. The unbeliever has preferred to be by himself, without God, defying God, having God against him, and he shall have his preference. Nobody stands under the wrath of God except those who want to be there. 
The essence of God's action in wrath is to give men what they want in all its implications, nothing more, nothing less. God's readiness to respect human choice to this extent may appear disconcerting and even terrifying, but it's plain that his attitude here is supremely just and pulls apart from the irresponsible inflicting of pain which many accuse him of. We need, therefore, to remember that the key to interpreting the many biblical passages, often highly figurative, which picture the divine king and judge as active against men in wrath and vengeance, is to realize that what God is doing is no more than to ratify and confirm judgments which those whom he visits have already passed on themselves by the course they have already chosen to follow. It's wisdom. It's wisdom. It's not the whole picture of everything that hell teaches, but it is this much. No one goes to hell except those who don't want to live with God, and God grants them their wish. So that's the first part, those who refuse to worship God. But secondly, those who indulge in the enticing ways of the world, that is, those who cave in and go along with the false prophet, the beast, and the dragon. They just get in line with the unholy trinity rather than getting in line with the holy trinity. So we read in verse 8, another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. That's what's eventually going to happen to the dragon, the false prophet, and the beast, and the world system in which they've created, which John calls Babylon here, after the Old Testament Babylon, wicked city. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. That is, she got them to forsake God and cling to her. So when you look at verse 8 and you see Babylon the Great mentioned, you see an image that we're going to see more of in the rest of Revelation where Babylon symbolizes the intoxicating immorality of the world in all of its forms. This picture is exactly what we see all over our culture. People indulging in, drinking down sexual pleasure and temporal pursuits of this world, thinking this is where satisfaction and delight are found. And Revelation is shouting loud and clear, this will be empty. This will come to an end. It will not satisfy. In fact, it will do the exact opposite. If you drink the wine of this world now, you will one day drink from the wine of the wrath of God later. So what is hell like then? Fifth and final question. We see it in verses 9 through 11. I want to talk about two things quickly, the nature of hell and the duration of hell. First of all, the nature of hell. In verse 10, it's described as drinking the wine of God's wrath. The image of pouring intoxicating wine from a cup often points to the experience of divine wrath and suffering. The phrase poured full strength in verse 10 is literally mixed unmixed. It's poured full strength. It's poured mixed unmixed. It's poured in to the unbeliever in an unmixed way. So there are two options here. It may mean that contrary to normal practice, the wine that's prepared will not in any way be diluted with water, unmixed. That is, God's wrath is utterly undiluted, being poured out in full strength, unmitigated, unmixed with mercy or long-suffering. Or two, John may be alluding to Psalm 75, where wine is mixed with spices to increase its intensity. Thus, mixed would refer to the addition of spices to increase the potency of the wine and unmixed to the fact that it's not diluted with any water. Either way, God's wrath is penal and is in no way remedial. Long-suffering and patience from God have given way to the consummation of a promised day of reckoning. 
But notice, not only is the nature of hell described as drinking the wine of God's wrath, but it's also described as tormenting with fire and sulfur, verse 10. Now, punishment with fire and sulfur should draw to your mind Genesis 19 and the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. The combination of fire and sulfur, or brimstone, as means of torment occurs four times in Revelation. Sulfur and brimstone was a type of asphalt that was found in volcanic deposits that produced extreme heat and a noxious smell. However, the nature of the torment is primarily here spiritual and psychological, and thus the fire and sulfur are figurative. In other words, as literal fire and sulfur cause physical pain and extreme discomfort to the body, so the infliction of divine judgment on unbelievers will cause spiritual and psychological anguish. Third, public exposure is added as an insult to injury. For we read that their punishment is in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. There is a very real sense in which God is in hell. That, no, he's not there in his love and his grace and his compassion, but he is there in his wrath and fury and holiness. And therefore, that is one of the greatest problems of hell, is that the one from whom unbelievers tried to escape their whole life will never escape. They will never escape him. And that's one of the reasons they rage on and on and on throughout eternity, while in some sense they never stop sinning because they never stop not wanting to be in the presence of God. But we also see here the duration of hell in some of the ways... Brothers and sisters, I can't even read this without crying. This is horrendous language. This, the, the reason this is in the Bible is so that Christ would be precious and people would hold on to him. Look at the way it's described. The smoke of their torment, verse 10, goes up forever and ever. The duration of hell is said to be unto the ages of the ages. This terminology occurs 13 times in Revelation. Three times, it's a reference to God's praise and glory and dominion. Five times, it refers to the length of the life of God or Christ. And once, it refers to the length of God's reign in Christ. Once referring to the length of the saints' reign. Once referring to the ascension of the smoke of destroyed Babylon. Once referring to the duration of the torment of the devil, the beast, and the false prophet. And of course, right here. What's it saying? Forever and ever means that hell goes on as long as God's praise and glory and dominion are deserving of it. That's forever. Or as, as long as the life of God is. Well, does God ever cease to exist? No, neither does hell. Or those in it. This is given in the phrase, they have no rest day or night. It's horrendous. George Whitfield, a great preacher from a century ago, not a perfect man by any means, but a faithful gospel preacher, would speak to crowds by the thousands in a day where they had no sound systems. He used to urge those crowds to consider the following. What he said was, quote, the torment of burning like a livid coal, not for an instant or a day, but for millions and millions of ages, at which end of which you will realize that you are no closer to the end than you, when you first began, and you will never, ever be delivered from that place. To the degree, brothers and sisters, that you and I struggle with the concept of hell and eternal punishment is to the degree to which we don't understand how great God really is. 
his holiness, his honor on the one hand, or the horror and depravity of mankind's sin on the other hand. In other words, if hell strikes you as unreasonable or unfair or disproportionate, it's only due to the fact that either you don't believe that God is infinitely holy and just, or you don't believe that mankind is really morally depraved and has committed cosmic treason deserving of eternal condemnation. John Piper says, The essential thing is that degrees of blameworthiness come not from how long you offend dignity, but from how high the dignity is that you offend. In other words, the reason hell is eternal is because sin is against God. That's why. God, our sin is deserving of infinite punishment because the infinite glory of the one whom we have sinned against. We get this as a culture. We understand that if there is a mass murder, that is far more blameworthy than a single murder, even though a single murder is horrendous. But if someone were to kill one person versus killing 25 people, their punishment should be more, if you can even quantify that. But brothers and sisters, when we're comparing 25 people to God, to God in his glory and his holiness and his worth, we're talking about, we're talking about a, a, a pebble to a boulder here. Why is it that people can become emotionally and morally indignant over poverty and exploitation and prejudice and abortion and the infractions of religious liberty and the manifold injustices of man against man and yet feel little or no remorse or indignation or outrage that God is disregarded by his creation every single day. He is disbelieved. He is disobeyed. He is dishonored. And he is belittled by millions and millions of people every moment of the day around the world. The reason that is, is because sin is real and it is the outrage of the universe. For God to be disregarded and disbelieved and disobeyed and dishonored and belittled and treated as insignificant or marginalized while we indulge in pleasure and material possessions and selfish pursuit which make him look insignificant and worthless and not worth devoting our lives to. But this stuff is. I am. This is why hell exists. So don't buy the idea that your actions today don't have consequences tomorrow. Everlasting, never-ending, soul-tormenting consequences are tomorrow. Now let me conclude with four brief words of application to take away from this passage. Three th four things this passage should produce in us. The first one is this. This passage should cause horror in our hearts. On the one hand, I can't read or think about this without feeling a deep and unrelenting agony in my heart. We should never be able to talk about hell without weeping. For it is real, and people are going there. This is not a subject for joking and lighthearted banter. It's an issue that should provoke within us anguish and an urgent commitment to share the gospel for all those who remain in unbelief. Say, I don't want you there. I don't want you there. I don't want you there. I want you with God. 
Second, this passage should provide and promote humility in all of our hearts. When I read about hell in a passage like Revelation 14, I'm reading about what I deserve. What I deserve. God would have been perfectly just and righteous to consign Mark Redfern to eternal torment the very first breath I took. But in mercy, he's drawn me to faith in Jesus. In mercy, he's poured out his wrath on Jesus in my place. A wrath and judgment that Jesus lovingly and willingly embraced and endured. Every single one of us deserves condemnation. God owes us nothing but justice. The fact that he has given us mercy instead and forgiveness instead of condemnation ought to awaken us the most heartfelt and passionate gratitude and praise we could render him. Thirdly, this passage gives us help for our hearts. Why is this passage in the Bible for us, Christians? So that we will endure. Eugene Peterson says the following about Revelation 14. He says, The book of Revelation doesn't underrate the satanic. All the same, a lot of it is... Sorry, he says, We are opposed by great power and deception. All the same, a lot of it is sheer bluff, and the caricaturing visions reduce the satanic trinity from what it puffs itself up to be to what it really is. This isn't supernatural power before which we're helpless. It's more like a paranatural power that we're not used to. But trained by John's pastoral wisdom and imagination, we are equipped to discern and stand fast. This chapter, Revelation 14, has three assisting visions for our salvation. First, a lamb leading worship in heaven. Second, three angels preaching sermons from a pulpit, mid-heaven. And thirdly, the Son of Man harvesting the fields. The visions, Eugene Peterson says, shows us while we're doing our best to worship God and not the powers of this world, to understand our faith and not to be misled by the devil's religious flim-flam, and to cultivate a life of holiness in a weed-filled society, we're being helped all along the way. He says, these three activities are the activities by which we survive and defeat the unholy trinity. We engage in worship, we listen to the proclaimed word, and we practice holy living. We find fortification for these th- from these things in the lamb leading worship, the angels preaching, and the son of man harvesting. So brothers and sisters, this chapter is meant to be a help to us that we would endure. Fourthly and finally, this passage should promote hope in our hearts. Horror, humility, help, and hope. I can't close with any better words than the ones that Charles Spurgeon used in 1876 to close his own sermon on Revelation 14. He says, I beseech you, do not risk that doom for yourselves. Escape for your lives. Look not behind you, but fly to the only refuge which God has provided. Whoever will entrust his soul to Jesus Christ shall be eternally saved. Look unto him who wore the thorn crown and repose your soul's entire confidence in him. And then in that last great day, you shall see him seated on the white cloud, wearing the golden crown, and you shall be gathered. But if you reject him, do not think it wrong that you should be cast with the grapes into the winepress of the wrath of God and be trodden with the rest of the clusters of the vine of the earth. I beg you to take Christ as your Savior. This very hour, lest this night you should die unsaved. Lay hold of Jesus 
lest you never hear another gospel invitation or warning. If I have seemed to speak terribly, God knows that I have not, I've done it out of love to your souls. And believe me that I do not speak as strongly as the truth might well permit me to do. For there is something far more terrible about the doom of the lost than language can ever express or thought could ever conceive. God save all of you from ever suffering that doom for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. There's hope. This passage is all about hope. So if you've never trusted in Jesus as the only one who can save you from your sin, do it now, right now, in your heart. Trust in him as the only one who's taken the wrath that you deserve in your place and cling to him, follow him as Lord of your life. The reality is, brothers and sisters, in three hours on that cross, he drained the hell for eternity for all those who trust in him. How worthy is this one? How worthy is Christ? How glorious is Christ if he would, in his body, three hours on a cross, absorb and say, it's finished, it's gone, it's done. So if you've never trusted in him, he is your only hope, and he is a sufficient hope. And Christian, if you're here today in any way being tempted to waver from Christ, wandering toward the ways of this world, he's lost his luster, the world is looking brighter than ever. I urge you, don't give up. Don't don't give up. Endure. Repent. Come back. You have to endure. You can't check out. You can't get rid of Christ before the end. Endure even when it's not easy. Because when it's most difficult is when Christ is most near. Soon all the saints throughout all of history, will rejoice together in the song of the redeemed. So hold fast to your faith, for soon all the saints will rejoice together, and they will all sing that one new song, but no one can learn it except those who've been redeemed from the earth. May we all be among those people. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for both your kindness and your severity. Romans 11 reminds us, Behold the kindness and severity of God. So we thank you that in obedience to your word this morning, we've done that. We've tried to look at your kindness in heaven, in the glory to come, and we've looked at your severity in hell. Lord, would you use your severity to shine a spotlight on your kindness, knowing that we're all here today to hear this. We're all here today because you wanted us to hear from your word this morning on this subject. I didn't plan the subject. We don't make a habit, as you know, Lord, of talking about hell every single week. But Lord, when it's in the text and when it's in front of us, we're going to address it. And so here we are. You've warned us graciously, but you've also promised us endless help and grace and forgiveness and Christ to be with us. So, Lord, may all of us here this morning, any among us who have never called upon the Lord Jesus or come to him, may we do so this morning. And all of us who are clinging right now to Christ, may we be pressed by this text to endure, to keep on trusting God, to keep having faith in Jesus, and to keep striving to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.